Welcome to the voyages and travels of the ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is episode 7, The Venice of the South. The date is September 16, 1636. After an exhausting voyage down the Volga, our ambassadors are anchored off the Russian city of Astrakhan, and Paul Fleming is writing a 200-line poetic monument to his friend and fellow poet, Adam Olarius. I have been remiss in discussing Fleming's contributions, but only because Olarius himself mentions his friend so infrequently. We know that Fleming left war-torn Leipzig to join Frederick's mission. We know he spent months in Veliki Novgorod, away from Olarius and the rest of the embassy. Aside from the short biography from episode 2, we know almost nothing else. So before we continue with the physical journey, let us pour ourselves a glass of good Russian hydromel, look out over the late summer Volga, and hear about Mr. Fleming, through the pen of Marion Spurberg McQueen, and her 1990 book, The German Poetry of Paul Fleming. The following section contains excerpts from the book, some extended and others condensed, and the transcript will not include quotation marks. The son of a Lutheran minister, Fleming was engaged successively to two sisters of a prominent Raval family, was jilted by one, and died at the age of thirty before he could marry the other. Much of his love poetry is appealing because it lacks a certain misogynistic element, latent or patent, in the love poetry of many early modern authors. He was aware of this misogynistic element, and he preferred love poetry that depicted a different relationship between the sexes, one based on equality and reciprocal fidelity. For this reason, and others, Fleming is considered to be a man who perhaps belonged to a different era. His poetry, his participation in Duke Frederick's exotic mission to Persia, and his early death made him legend's favorite child in the eyes of many Germans, especially Protestants, and especially Protestant Germans in Raval. The details of his life are less well known, and all the biographies I found are in German, which I don't speak. Sperberg McQueen provides what she can, given that her book is more about Fleming's poetry and less about his life. He was a student at the St. Thomas Boarding School in Leipzig from about 1622 until 1628. Founded by Augustinian monks in the year 1212, it is one of the oldest schools in the world. Health, discipline, and standards were particularly bad during the Thirty Years' War. The main duty of the pupils in the 1620s, as it had been since its founding in the 13th century, was to sing at church services, funerals, and weddings. The boys' health suffered severely. They were required to stay through the entire service when they sang in cold churches and churchyards in winter. At funerals, they had to wait outside in the rain or snow until the long funeral procession had entered the church, and then find places to sit and kneel on the cold stones. They were vulnerable to the epidemics that visited Leipzig in the 1620s and 1630s. All the boarders lived together in cramped quarters, and there was no separate sick room. The situation was no better with regard to academics than it was to health, Indeed, that Fleming was so well-read must have been more the result of native talent than the education provided by the school. In the spring of 1631, Fleming, by now a student in his third year at the University of Leipzig, published a poem composed as letters written by Germany, personified as a woman, 
Letter from Expelled Woman Germania She first issues a fervent plea to Germany's princes and estates to accept her letter as if they still regard her as their mother. It is bad enough that she is banished to the outermost edge of Germany, but she remembers that once she was mighty, and now her own children have turned against her, filling the earth with so much blood that the rivers must help wash it away. Above all, she is ready to fight bravely against any enemies, but that her sons are made enemies by internal strife is beyond her endurance. She begs her sons, the various states of Germany, to hold sacred God, the empire, natural law, custom, the ancient German faith, and to come to her aid. As a motto for the Latin version of the poem, Fleming chose this sentence from a German jurist of the time. The Pax Romana, in the judgment of these same Romans, was held together by nothing more strongly than by the mutual hatred of the Germans among themselves, as Tacitus also said in Der Germania, when he expressed his wish in these words, May there remain, I pray, and continue among the Germans, if not love for us, then at least mutual hatred, for with the oppressive circumstances of the empire, fate can offer us nothing greater than the discord of our enemies. Germania similarly recognizes that her situation is bad enough when her enemies threaten her, but becomes insupportable when her own children attack her. If it is not, this sentiment should be at least vaguely familiar to many citizens of the West today, whose very foundation is under attack by her own sons and daughters. Before leaving Leipzig in 1633, Fleming wrote numerous funeral songs for deceased citizens of the city. You will remember from episode 2 that the extremely high number of weddings in the 1630s was caused by the extremely high mortality rate. In three successive autumns, the city was besieged, and war made pestilence an even more frequent visitor. The first siege, especially following as it did on the heels of a close friend's death, must have seemed to Fleming like the continuation of a nightmare. During this period, university functions were interrupted by the war even when the city was not directly under attack. Fleming was to have received his magister in January 1633, but this was delayed until May. From January 1635 to March 1636, Fleming lived in Reval while Olarius and a few others returned to Gottorp to get Tsar Mikhail's agreement ratified. This period was probably the most productive in Fleming's career. There are many undated love poems that were most likely written in Raval, as well as numerous occasional poems for citizens of the town and members of the expedition. Otto Brueggemann was related to one of the important families of the area, that of Johann Muller, and the eight Muller children seem to have been particularly successful in drafting Fleming to write for them. And so here we are in Astrakhan, where Fleming is looking out at the city and writing a poem to his friend. To Mr. Olarius, before Astrakhan of the Russians in Nogai. Even though no one here thinks almost of this being, so you are still there, the one who likes my diligence. You speak your judgment well, a right-minded judge, as you yourself are a highly skilled poet. Therefore my mind drives me to write a script where only the pen meets with the mind, who laughs out her death, who against envy and times may fight for your glory and me without end. 
It rhymes in German, of course, and the title refers to the various Mongol and Turkic tribes who formed the Nogai Horde of the North Caucasus. But I am neither poet nor translator, so I have recreated a few lines with the help of several accursed internet engines, which care not for my industry or yours. Fleming's purpose, writes Spurberg McQueen, is to create a monument that will ensure the lasting fame of Olarius and himself. And the reason for writing to and about Olarius in particular is that he is the only companion who understands and approves Fleming's industry. First, the poet traces his friend's life from the cradle to the present, saying his youthful talents were gifts from the gods. There was a fine quarrel at your cradle. There would be one god closest to you. They crowded around you. Apollo breathed on you the arts sweetly. May's child the ornament of voluptuousness. Urania tended you to their heaven. The math that showed as air and sea and earth and everything compares with each other until a son of heaven is begotten on the earth as you are. The first half is thus a panegyric, elaborate praise of Hilarius, interrupted by a reference to the terrible war they have both left behind. The dear fatherland, which is hardly to be known, of melancholy shapeless, of melancholy of all misery, in which it is without death now, has been dead for so long, his own sword and grave. Thou didst see this happen, until you don't see fear any longer. You named the way far into the stairway for you, the way that many tried, and none before you, thou noble Holstein. Thou hast been able to come so far. You, more than a friend, took me with you, a witness of my deeds, which, however small, my Germany reads not without love. I know how obsessed I am with you for this, that I will not forget after my death. But Fleming also remarks on the futility of long journeys, which, embarked upon by the suffering rememberers in order to forget, themselves become sources of suffering, a painful lesson to which Fleming reverts two years later in another poem. There is thus little consolation for the rememberers, even when they valiantly strive to disengage themselves from their past. The latter half of the poem includes the interests of both men, provides some information about their actual activities and welfare, and hints at Fleming's own unhappy circumstances that are never clarified. He relates how he and Alarius are wont to go down to the edge of the Caspian, to contemplate the tempestuous sea, describing its fury and the events that culminated in the Baltic shipwreck described in episode 4. And he exclaims that he wishes all his unhappiness had been destroyed, and sunk to the bottom of the sea in the storm. In a previous poem, written in May 1636, Fleming explicitly wrote that on his arrival in Moscow he was determined not to continue with the journey, but to turn back. For one reason or another, and it is unclear whether it was his own decision or due to outside pressure, he changed his mind. At the end, the poet shifts his focus to the present moment. He urges his friend to do honor to the day by composing a song for his beloved, and himself resolves to do what he can. The tone is sober, but no longer despairing. That he is able to offer counsel and to face his situation with a promise of effort, if not with abundant optimism, is the modest result of the transformation from despair to hope. My sin is without deceit, wise in quiet simplicity, nor can he give him his grief, to which he has the right to go. For the time being, I only want to make myself happy. The Most High, who sees it, will avenge all innocence. 
I will be content. What is not there today will come tomorrow. I want to bend down under myself with all my will until my doom refreshes me again. Who knows what honey is that wormwood does not try? The bitter is the stem, the sweeter is the fruit. Astrakhan is 60 miles from the Caspian Sea and seated upon the frontiers of two of the most considerable parts of the world. Those two considerable parts are the continents of Europe and Asia, and the city, a destination on the old Silk Road and sometimes called the Venice of the South, entertains merchants from Russia, Persia, Crimea, Tartaria, Armenia, and India. And Olarius tells us these last have a particular marketplace there for themselves. The name Tartaria has fallen out of favor, but once referred to that part of Asia bounded by the Caspian Sea, the Ural Mountains, the Pacific Ocean, and the northern borders of China, India, and Persia. It was later separated into Great Tartary, Siberia, Little Tartary, the Crimean Khanate, Chinese Tartary, Manchuria, and Independent Tartary, West Central Asia. Here, Olarius is referring to the Tatarian merchants living in the regions surrounding the Caspian. In Astrakhan, the Tatars have their own princes, their own military commanders, and their own judges. But to prevent them from doing anything contrary to their allegiance to the duke, the Tsar holds several of their princes hostage in the city's fortress. Olarius measures the city 8,000 feet in circumference and the side towards the river at 2,216 feet across. He says the city affords a pleasant prospect by reason of the great number of turrets and steeples of stone, which look very delightful at a distance. The houses are made of wood and not well built, and thus the city is not so beautiful when viewed up close. The ambassadors are told that 500 cannons protect the city, along with 4,500 soldiers in nine regiments. They have an eye upon the Tatars, who cannot be trusted, and thus are forced to live in palisades and huts outside the city. The huts, round and some twelve feet in diameter, are made of bulrushes or canes covered in felt, and look like the chicken coops in Europe. The children are all big-bellied and go about stark naked. Girls wear a nose-ring of ruby, turquoise, or coral. Boys wear the ring in their right ear. The Tatars raise cattle, sheep, horses, and some camels, all of which they eat. Fish is a staple food, which, when dried in the sun, takes the place of bread. They also make cakes of meal, rice, and millet, fried in oil or honey. Mare's milk is a delicacy, and the ambassadors are served some of the drink in what Olarius calls a nasty leather bag. They are, for the most part, Muslims of the Turkish sect, and therefore hate the Muslims who are Persian. Our ambassadors find the city's apples, quinces, nuts, peaches, and melons as delicious as the horse milk is nasty, and are surprised that neither the Russians nor the Tatars eat the lobsters, which are caught in large quantities. The Tatars hunt wild boar, but do not eat them for religious reasons, and sell them to the Russians instead. They are also excellent falconers, and catch infinite numbers of geese and ducks. 
Valerius introduces us to an old monk who has planted a good number of grapevines in a nearby convent. In 1613, the Tsar heard of the monk's success and ordered him to increase the crop's yield. Today, the vines take up the entire garden, and last year produced enough grapes to earn the monastery 100 crowns. The monk, who is 105 years old, tells Olarius that he is a German born in Austria, and as a young boy was captured by the Turks and sold to the Russians. He eventually converted to the Russian Orthodox faith, and now speaks only a smattering of his mother tongue. He dances when he gets drunk with the ambassadors, and Olarius tells us they spend much time in his company. Most of Russia's vineyards are located in the North Caucasus region, where the continental climate is excellent for growing grapes. The country of Georgia, which might be the oldest wine-producing region in the world, has its western border on the Black Sea, and its eastern border is only 100 miles from the Caspian. Of the former Soviet countries, only Moldova produces more grapes. Archaeological evidence suggests that some form of wine production first began six to 8,000 years ago, in the region that includes Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and eastern Turkey. And each of those modern countries claims to be the birthplace of wine. Valerius tells us that abundant salt veins cover the area between Astrakhan and the Black Sea. Indeed, there is so much salt that a man may take as much as he likes by paying a halfpenny in tax for every 40 pounds. Russian salt merchants pile it up in great heaps along the Volga until they can transport it for sale elsewhere. But he disputes the account of Peter Petraeus, who wrote in his History of Muscovy, that within two leagues of Astrakhan there are two mountains of salt that would never be exhausted, even if worked perpetually by 30,000 men. I could learn nothing of those imaginary mountains, Hilarius tells us, but it is certain indeed that the salt veins we speak of are inexhaustible. Lake Baskunchak, which lies just a few miles east of the Volga, has been an important source of salt since the 8th century, annually producing up to 5 million tons of sodium chloride that is 99.8% pure. France also produces a lot of salt, and Olarius tells us that for this reason, Astrakhan smells a lot like France. Here we must say our goodbyes to Samuel Barron, who ends his 1967 translation before the ambassadors leave Russia. I'm certain we will all miss him, but I will do my best to press on with the early modern translation of John Davies. On the day after their arrival in Astrakhan, the ambassadors are visited by many Persian merchants who want to see the ship. All of them bring presents, according to the custom of their country, and treat the foreigners with much kindness and familiarity. This is a delightful surprise for the Germans, and they respond by giving their guests the liberty to do what they pleased in our ship. They were also extremely pleased to see them all get so heartily and so kindly drunk that some, as they departed, fell into the water. One elderly merchant tells the ambassadors he would drink their wine even if it were poison. He falls asleep on deck and stays there all night. The Persian merchant fleet mentioned in episode 6 is also in Astrakhan, and some of its members come for a visit aboard the Friedrich along with some sailors. The mariners are astonished at the bigness of our ship, Hilarius writes, and all of them say she is not fit for sailing the Caspian Sea. Their own ships are much smaller, have only a single mast, and unless the Germans cut their three masts down to size, they fear she will be overwhelmed by the high and contiguous waves. 
The ambassadors, concerned by the advice of the Persians, send a representative to Astrakhan's commander, asking whether they should continue the journey by land or sea. The commander replies that he needs time to get advice from skilled sailors. And the Germans decide three things. They ignore the Persian advice, they decline to wait for the Russian advice, and they resolve, for several reasons, to continue our voyage by sea. A Russian envoy traveling with the Persians, one Alexei Savinovich Romanchukov, visits the Friedrich on September 24, and our ambassadors are much impressed. He is about 30 years of age, and, contrary to most of his countrymen, is quite ingenious and inclined to learn all he can of Latin, mathematics, and astronomy. Olarius tells us he spends a lot of time with Alexei in Isfahan, orders an astrolabe to be made for him by the company's clockmaker, and teaches him to measure the time of day, the elevation of the sun, and the height of any building nearby. Unfortunately, on the return trip from Persia, Alexei learns that he faces disgrace in Moscow and commits suicide in Nizhny Novgorod. They spend a week entertaining and being entertained, but on October 1, the commander of the city calls a meeting with Olarius and two other officers of the company. He informs them that Ambassador Brueggemann has treated their Russian Pristov with great rudeness and disrespect, and that no public official of the Tsar should be treated in such manner. He must therefore make an official report of the incident, which will not be well received by the Duke of Holstein or Tsar Mikhail but that there is no reason the whole retinue should suffer for the mistakes of one man. The company spends the following days provisioning the ship with baked bread and meat, barrels of beer and salt fish, and 20 oxen. They leave Astrakhan on October 10. In the next episode, the crew of the Friedrich stages a mutiny, and we find out if the Persian sailors were right about the seaworthiness of the German ship on the Caspian leg of the voyages and travels of the ambassadors.